to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the second chapter, verses 26, 27, and 28. Verses 26, 27, and 28 in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back upon me, and not their face. But, unto, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. We are considering this first great message delivered by the prophet Jeremiah to the children of Israel for the twelfth and the last time. We've been working our way through it we have seen that there is one great message here which the prophet goes on repeating and we've got it again in these verses that we're looking at tonight. Here are these children of Israel in terrible trouble. Everything had gone wrong. There was a national declension in every conceivable respect. And here they are not knowing what to do and utterly bewildered, turning to various expedients. None of them are of any value In fact, they're doing everything except the one thing that they should have done at the beginning, and that is to turn back to God. But God, in his love and in his mercy and kindness, in spite of their folly and their rebellion and recalcitrance, hasn't forsaken them. He sends prophets to them, pleading with them, urging them to repent, ere it should be too late. And here is the last of the great succession, this mighty prophet, Jeremiah, and he really has only one message, and here it is, that all their troubles are due to the fact that they've turned their backs upon God, that they've made to themselves idols and worshipped them, that they've imitated the other nations and taken up not only their gods, but their evil and their sinful practices. And it is because of that that things are with them as they are, and God has been explaining this to them analyzing it, exposing it, working it out in details, showing its utter folly, showing its consequences in detail, showing the nature of sin and what must inevitably be the end of sin. Never has there been a more closely argued and reasoned statement. Never has God, as it were, so humbled himself in order to show people their state and condition and warn them and save them from the calamity that was rapidly approaching. Well, there they are. And here now in these words that we're looking at tonight, he seems to gather it all up into a final statement. There is more that comes, but here I feel is the last great message. The rest is more or less a repetition of what has already been respect, uh, what has already been said. Well, now, what is this? Well, the question that is being asked in a sense is this. What can cause people to be guilty of such unutterable folly? And there's but one answer. It is their refusal to think. It is their refusal to consider. 
And what God is doing here with these people is uh, appealing to them to think, to consider, to weigh and estimate. And he puts it here in a very striking manner. He asks them, ere it is too late, to compare and to contrast the religion to which they've turned and which they've espoused and the religion which they have forsaken. That's what we've got in these three verses. It is a comparison and a contrast of two types of religion. False religion, true religion. There is no other category. There is only one true religion, the religion of the living God, that which is described in the Bible, Old Testament and New. There are many other varieties of the false religion, but they're all false. doesn't matter what form they take, they're all false religions. And here we've got this wonderful comparison and contrast between the two types of religion. But why should we be considering this? Is this merely some kind of antiquarian interest that we have? Are we just here analyzing the condition of the children of Israel so many long centuries ago? No, we're not doing that primarily. Our primary interest is this. We are concerned about the world as it is tonight and about ourselves. That's what we're doing. We're in a world full of trouble, full of pain, full of anguish, full of unhappiness. And we are here to consider that. And uh, we are considering it in this way because we know that the teaching of this book is that the world never changes. And that what was true of these people is still true of us. And therefore what I want to do this evening is to do precisely what Jeremiah was doing as a servant of God in these three verses. We are going to look at ourselves and we are going to make this comparison between the true and the false religion. In other words, we are going to ask certain questions. To what are we trusting, I wonder? On what are we basing our whole position this evening? Here we are in the midst of life, surrounded by problems and troubles. What are we basing our whole position on? How are we standing up to it? On what are we resting? That's the question that was being put to these people. Now, here's calamity coming. Are you ready for it? How are you preparing for it? On what are you relying? And he shows them on what they were relying. He shows them what they should be relying on. We've got to do exactly the same thing. Ah, but says somebody, I'm not religious. But my dear friend, uh, that is in a sense your religion. Everybody's religious. Every one of us has got a religion. What is a man's religion? Well, a man's religion is that which he ultimately relies upon. Everybody is worshipping something. Man is a worshipping creature. He's always worshipped. He always will. He's still worshipping. Uh, what is a man's religion? Well, a man's religion is his working philosophy, if you like. It's his view of life. It's what he lives for. It's what he hopes for. A man's God is that uh, for which he gives himself, he gives his time, his attention, his thought, his money. He lives for it. It's the thing that keeps him going. That's his religion. And every man you see has got his religion. Everybody. But the vital question is this. What is our religion? Have we got this true religion or are we followers of some false kind of religion? How can we test them? How can we tell the difference? 
as we face the world and life as they are this evening. Oh, it's a, a strange world in which we're living, isn't it? Calamities, accidents, death all around us, life uncertain. You never know what's going to happen next in this modern world of ours. We are so clever, we are pray, praying with such tremendous forces. As is often pointed out, some fool may suddenly press the wrong button and the end will have come. Now, how are we facing that? On what are we relying in such a world as this, this evening? How can we test the religion which we have to discover whether it is a false religion or a true religion? Well, we can do nothing better than take the three tests which are suggested to us in our text this evening. What are they? Well, here's the first. The first test always to apply to any kind of religion is the nature or the character of the God who is worshipped. The second is to test the capacity and the power of that God to help you in the crises and the troubles of life. And the third test is this. In what kind of state or condition does your religion leave you at the end? Now, the three tests are here. And all that I want to do briefly this evening is to examine uh, the two types of religion, the false religion and the true, in terms of these three tests. Now, let's take the false religion first. The first test I say that must be applied to any religion, and therefore to the false religion, is the nature or the character of the gods who are being worshipped. The central focus of any religion, of course, is the God who is worshipped. Obviously. Well, very well. Let's see the kind of gods who men worship when they have their false religion. This is what I read here. This is true, says Jeremiah, of the kings, the princes, the priests, and the prophets. What are they doing? Well, they're saying to a stock, Thou art my father. And to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. Oh, how typical this is of all false religion. Look at these Jews. Here they were, the people of God, who had been blessed by him in such a striking manner, brought out of Egypt, taken through the Red Sea, sustained in the wilderness, taken through the Jordan, surrounded by miracles, by God's marvels, given a land for nothing, and a land flowing with milk and honey, a pleasant land. And yet what have they done? They've turned their backs on God. What are they worshipping? Well, they're worshipping gods that they've made for themselves. They've taken a bit of wood and they've chiseled it and planed it. And they've formed it into an appearance of a man or perhaps some kind of beast or animal. And then they've bowed down to it. Or they've taken a stone. And the mason has gone to work. The artificer has been at it. And he's formed again this stone, just a bit of stone, formed it into a god. And then they said, These be thy gods, O Israel. And they bowed down and they worshipped them and they took burnt offerings and sacrifices. And listen to what they said. They turned to the stock and they said, Thou art my father. And to the stone they said, Thou hast brought me forth. Oh, what a terrible thing. But it's so typical of every kind of false religion. It's utterly debased. Can't you see it on the very surface? Adult, intelligent men bowing down to a bit of wood and saying, Thou art my father. Taking a bit of stone 
and saying, Thou hast brought me forth. What are their gods? Well, they're their own creations. They've made them. They've made their own gods. These uh, have no existence. They have no being at all. There is no such thing. Take all these false gods that are mentioned in the Old Testament to, to which the children of Israel had turned. Not a single one of them had any life. As the psalmist put it in that 115th psalm, it's perfectly true. They all had eyes. Yes, men had made eyes for them. But though they'd made eyes for them, they couldn't see. There was no optic nerve at the back. There was no brain to interpret. They have eyes, but they don't see. Hands, but they can't handle. Feet, but they can't walk. Nostrils, but they can't smell. Ears, but they can't hear. Tongues, but they can't speak. Of course they can't. They have no life. They don't exist. Men have made them. They're men's own creations. Having made their gods, they bow down to them and they worship them and listen to them, pouring forth their praise. Oh, how utterly debased is false religion. Its gods are no gods. Man, in worshipping these false gods, becomes a fool. Well, now here I say is a great principle. You'll find this is the denunciation of false religion everywhere in the Old Testament. But you know it's as true tonight as it was then. Men are still worshipping this kind of god. Oh, it isn't quite so crude, perhaps. It isn't perhaps just a bit of wood or of stone, but it's the same essentially in principle. What are men and women living to? What is their God tonight, those who are not Christian? And the answer is, they're all worshipping gods of their own creation. They're pinning their faith to something that they themselves have produced. That's the thing for which they're living. That's your God, I say, the thing that really possesses you, the thing which interests you and excites you, the thing that draws you out, the thing to which you are constantly turning, the thing really by which you live. What are the things by which men and women are living tonight? Well, I've used the right word. I said, what are the things? And so many people are living simply for things. It's a materialistic age. This is the view of life that's current and prevalent and popular. What is life? Well, life is, well, business of life is to have things, to possess things. Never has there been a greater interest in money and in things, gadgets, machines. People want to possess them. And they live for these things. They get excited about them. They write about them. You'll find the magazines full of them. Types of motor car, types of furniture, various instruments. And they live for these. This is everything. It's their great ambition. Always to be getting something better and better, more and more expensive. On and on you go. The, the, the people are living for these things. I'm not exaggerating. These are the things which constitute the very mainspring of their lives. But it isn't merely a question of things and materialism. Isn't it tragic to notice how so many today are living simply for pleasure? Oh, I don't want to keep you with these things. But there are so many people who are living for pleasure. They're living on it. They can't go on without it. It's absolutely essential to their lives. They'd be utterly bereft without it. And think of all the selfishness that is involved in all this. Now, there are thousands of people in this country tonight who are not in a place of worship, they're at home. Or in some other place, 
They're seeking some entertainment and pleasure, and now they, they feel very sorry for us. They say, fancy people still doing that, still going to a chapel, still singing hymns, still reading the Bible and listening to a sermon. Now, they, they think they're emancipated. Oh, they've got rid of all that. They've got a bigger, higher type of life. But the question is this, what are they really living for? What is the basis of their life? And I think you'll have to agree that I'm giving an accurate analysis and description of what is true, probably of the vast majority. These are the things for which they live. They excite them. They infuse them. They say, this is wonderful. But look at the things. It's the old stock and the bit of stone still. But even come higher up the scale. Take modern men with his theories, his philosophies, and his much-vaunted thinking and understanding. What is it? Well, it's none of it bigger than himself. None of it rises higher than the man himself. Your best and greatest philosophies about the thoughts and the projection of men's minds, they're all human creations. Your greatest philosophies have come from men. As men used to make the stock and the stone and worship, men put up their philosophies and worship them. But they're only their own thoughts. They're only their own ideas. They never rise higher than themselves. And I suppose that the ultimate God that all mankind outside those who believe in Christ is worshipping tonight is man himself. That's why man doesn't worship God. He's worshipping himself. He doesn't realize it, but that is what he's doing. He has forsaken the only God, and he set himself up as a God. Man, his ability, his power, his understanding, even in the world as it is tonight, man is relying upon man and man's ability and ingenuity. That's his God, himself. But let us come to the second test. The second test to apply to any religion is the ability of this religion to help us when we are really in trouble. In the crises of life, that is surely the time to test the thing in which we believe, the thing to which we pin our faith. And let us consider some of the crises, some of the points at which we are urgently in need of help. What do I ask of my religion? Well, I want help when I'm confronted by temptation. The world is full of temptation. And man needs something that can help him to withstand the power and the force of temptation. What's the value of what you believe in when you're tempted? How does that to which you pin your faith really help you when evil makes an onslaught upon you? What has it got to give you? But let's look at a second test. What about illness? Here's a crisis in life, isn't it, when a man is taken ill. This is very much in my life, in my mind, and in my life at the present moment for this reason. I stood at the bedside a few days ago of a man who is a minister of religion, as I am myself, and whom I'd known for some 30 years. And he said a very profound thing to me. He said, you know, it's an odd thing to be lying like this on a bed in a hospital. 
Ah, he said, this is the place where a man discovers what he believes. He said, for 30 years I've been visiting sick people and I've said it's all right to them. He said, it's not quite as easy to say to myself as it was to say to them, I find. But you see, that's one of the tests, isn't it? Oh, it's all very well when the sun is shining and when you're healthy and young and so on and everything's going well. Ah, well, of course, if so, any sort of philosophy is all right then. It doesn't matter very much. But oh, here's the test. What if you suddenly lose your health? And you can no longer do the things you've been doing. You can't do your work. You can't go after your pleasure. You can't enjoy your friends because you're too ill. You're too tired. You've got too much pain. It takes too much energy out of you. You're left lying on a bed by yourself. Now, my friend, that's the point at which to test your religion. Does it help you there? Is the thing to which you've been pinning your faith of use to you now? A religion which doesn't help you at that point is of no value at all. Or go on and consider grief and sorrow. Oh, there are many families in this country tonight. They're very happy, father and mother and children. They have no interest in God. They've never thought of him. They never have family prayers. They never read his book. They never pray to him at all. They're living for one another. And it's wonderful, they say. But suddenly one of them is taken, a little child perhaps, or father or mother. Where are they now? How do they feel now? How have they stood up to the test of death? My dear friends, these are facts. I'm not imagining things. These are things that can happen to any one of us at any moment. And the test of our religion is how does it help us at the moment of grief or of anguish or of sorrow or of bereavement? Or take old age, which is bound to come. What a test this is. Did you hear a great man in the wireless the other day confessing quite openly that he... Couldn't look forward to anything. He'd got nothing to look forward to. The best is past, he says. It's gone. He's got nothing. The things he's lived for are slipping out of his hands. He can't do them any longer. Why? Well, because the old age is creeping on. He's in the middle seventies. And he's got nothing. He's looking back. He can't look forward. He can't meet old age. His religion doesn't help him. Oh, let me put it like this to you. What is the value of that religion of yours when you're acutely conscious of failure in life? When you've got an acute sense of guilt? When your conscience is condemning you and standing before you and reminding you of yourself and what you've done and what you've been? Oh, how does your religion help you there when you feel you can't forgive yourself? These are the tests. Take finally death itself, your own death. Not the death of somebody else now, but that illness, it's gone on to the point of death. And you know you're going. You're leaving all behind you. And you're moving from time into eternity. And there is the judgment of God. That's the way to test your religion. It isn't when you're on holiday. It isn't when the sun is shining. It's when everything has gone wrong. When the elemental, fundamental facts of life are there. And you've got to face them and you can't escape, you can't evade them. Does it help you then? Well, you remember what it was in the case of Israel. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They've been saying to the stock, thou art my father, to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. But in the time of their trouble they will say, arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. 
You've had plenty of them according to the number of thy cities and thy gods, O Judah. Oh, what a fraud this false religion is. When you need it, it's got nothing to give you. In the moment of your agony, it forsakes you. How could it have helped you? It's only a stock, it's only a stone. It's only you, yourself, and your thoughts, and your brilliant philosophies. They can't meet death, they can't meet judgment. They can't help you when your heart is broken. It's a fraud. It's a debased fraud. It lets you down just when you need it, most of all. But let us come to the third test, which is this. How does this kind of religion leave you at the end? Well, it's obvious from what I've been saying, but here it is in one word by the prophet. It leaves you ashamed. As the thief is ashamed when he is found. So is the house of Israel ashamed. And ashamed, you know, means put to shame. Confounded. Bewildered. Put to shame. What does he mean? Well, I think we can analyze this. The first thing he is saying is this that a false religion will always be found out. Look at his comparison. As the thief is ashamed when he's found. Look at the thief. Clever fellow this. He knows how to do things. He's not going to be caught. He watches and waits for his opportunity. Lights have gone out everywhere. Slips around corners. Nobody's seen him. He's hiding stealthily. He goes along. Slips in. Uses his special key. Opens a lock. He's in. All is well. Nobody knows. Nobody's seeing him. And he congratulates himself. It's very wonderful. He's going to steal a great sum of money. And he's going to live on this and going to be very happy. And on he goes. Comes to the crucial moment. Suddenly a light is flashed upon him. He's been found. He's exposed. He's found out. He's discovered to himself and to others. And there he stands, utterly ashamed and confounded. All his cleverness he sees is utter folly. He's got nothing to say, he doesn't know what to do. He's caught, red-handed, found out. You know, my friends, this is true of every false religion. It's invariably found out because it is false and because God is true. There's a classical example of this. In the New Testament, and I'm referring, of course, to the well-known case of the prodigal son. What a clever fellow he was. He knew more about life and how to live it than his father did. And therefore, home was not satisfactory. He'd got a better philosophy. He'd got a real understanding. Off he goes, confident, assured. But you remember the end of the story, don't you? Where does it end? It ends in the foreign... Country, the far country, in a field with swine and husks. Poor fellow, found out, exposed to himself. Like a thief, when he is ashamed, when he is found, so is the house of Israel. Found out, ashamed. For years they'd been worshipping these idols, but the trouble is coming, and they've got nothing. Their idols can't help them. And there they are, ashamed, confounded. 
In other words, secondly, their folly is revealed to themselves and it is realized. All to which we had trusted suddenly leaves us and forsakes us and we've got nothing at all. Go back again to your prodigal. He'd got any number of friends as long as he'd got money to squander on them. But you see, when all is gone and the pockets are empty and the food is short and there's a famine in the land, everybody's after himself and he's left alone with the swine. And if your religion is a religion of stocks and stones, You'll come to that one day. You'll find your boon companions are not interested in you. They want what they can get out of you. And when you need them, they suddenly leave you. And you're left alone, leaving the world to misery and to me. My ruined dreams, my ruined dreams. Oh, what a debased, false religion this is. Not only that, you see, there's something even worse about it. When a man comes against the crisis, he not only finds he's got nothing, but there's something still more humiliating. Listen to this. Here they are saying to the stocks, Thou art my father into a stone, thou hast brought me forth. But in the time of their troubles as God to them, they will say, Arise and save us. To whom? To God. The God whom they'd forsaken They've now got to turn back to him. Why? Well, because nothing else and nobody else can help them. Their gods are frauds. They're useless. They're of no value to them. And here they are with desperation facing them. What can they do? So they turn back to God, whom they dismissed and derided and blasphemed. Cowards, cads that they are. They turn back to him. As the last resort of desperate sinners. Well, you've got that again in the prodigal son, haven't you? There he is, you see, in the foreign far country. Friends have gone. Swine can't help him. Husks are of no value. What shall he do? And you know what the cad said? I will arise and go to my father, the father he'd left. Fool. This is the ultimate degradation. Having at last to see your own folly and to turn back to the God whom in your greatness and wonderful wisdom you'd forsaken and turned your back upon. Here you are at last having to ask him to arise and to save you because you realize at last there is no other God. He is the only God. Oh, but you say that's ancient history, is it? It's contemporary history, at least it happened in 1912, you know. Do you remember the story of the Titanic still? This unsinkable ship setting out from Southampton going to cross the Atlantic. Sunday afternoon, band playing, everybody dancing and drinking. Unsinkable ship. Messages come saying, icebergs ahead. Nonsense. What's this to the Titanic? Ship within a ship, can't sink. Carry on, full steam ahead. Jazz music, dancing, gambling, drinking, everything but God. Suddenly the awful thud. The iceberg has been struck. Yes. And when the iceberg struck the ship, the band struck up. Nearer, my God, to thee. 
nearer to thee. Same thing. And didn't we read men giving their experiences in the last war, men who were torpedoed in the merchant navy or in the navy? And there they were in these little dinghies, whatever they call them, in the Atlantic or somewhere else. Days after days passed, water had all gone, nothing could be done. And the men were honest enough to say afterwards. They said, you know, we suddenly began to pray. We hadn't prayed for years. They'd forgotten God, of course. They were 20th century men. They were too intelligent to believe in God. But when you're starving and dying of thirst in a wide ocean and nobody sees you and knows you're there... You begin to turn to God and to pray and to ask him to arise and to deliver you. Oh, the false religion. Oh, the utter madness and degradation of worshipping a stock and a stone and believing that they are gods and saying, Thou art my father, thou hast brought me forth and trusting to these things. My friend, a day is coming when all your trusting in will have gone and you'll be alone. And then you'll know there's only one God. And in your utter shame and feeling that you're the biggest cad in the universe, you will turn to him and you'll say, Arise and save me. Oh, the horror of a false religion. This shame, this pretense, this false friend that ever deserts us in the hour of our greatest need. Let's leave it. That's false religion. But the amazing thing is this, that anybody could ever turn to it and ever believe in it. And especially when we see what they leave. They have turned their back unto me and not their face. They've turned their faces to stocks and stones. Instead of turning their faces to God, oh, let us see the folly and the futility of it all. Let's see its degradation, its madness. And the way to see that is not only to look at the false, but especially to look at the true. Look at the contrast. What are the tests? Well, the same three. The nature of the God. Stocks, stones, and over against them. Me? They have turned their back unto me? Who is he? Is he a stock? Is he a stone? Is he a precious metal? No, no. He says, I am that I am. His being, his person, me, God, the Almighty, the everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. Glorious in holiness, almighty in power, dwelling in a light which is unapproachable. Lord, thy glory fills the heavens. Earth is with thy fullness stored. God, the everlasting and the eternal God. Think of it. Men and women turn their backs to him and turn to stocks and to stones and to men and men's devices and houses and motor cars and pleasures and fun and the comedians and how marvelous it is. And as they're looking at these, they turn their back on him, the almighty God. But no man hath seen God at any time because of his glory. 
His majesty, his holiness, his everlasting light. But thank God we know something about him. God has been pleased to reveal himself to us in a person. Here we are the Sunday before Christmas, thinking of Jesus Christ. And if you want to see the nature of the God, look at him. He said, he who hath seen me hath seen the Father. Look at me, he says. What do I see? Well, I see nothing but a babe lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And I ask my question, who is this? So weak and helpless child of lowly Hebrew maid. And you know the answer? Tis the law. Oh, wondrous story. This is God in the flesh. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. No longer a stock or a stone, a babe, yes, but the almighty God. The Son, the everlasting Son of God. Look at the wise men, the sages coming from the east to worship him and offering their gold and frankincense and myrrh. Why? Well, he is a king. He's a god. Look at ancient Simeon holding him in his arms and saying, Lord, let us, now let us thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Look at him. Look at his wisdom. He appears as a man and as a carpenter, but look at his wisdom, look at his knowledge, listen to his teaching, look at his powerful works. Go up unto the Mount of Transfiguration, and there behold him. Suddenly he is transfigured. His very clothing becomes shining brightly. Beyond the brightest shining of the sun, he's transfigured. Oh, it's not surprising that John should have said, And we beheld his glory. The glory of as, the, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is he? He is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. Who is he? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's who he is. He is the mighty God. Here is the one from whom men are turning. Here is the one whom the world is ignoring tonight. Turning their backs upon him. Look at the things they're worshipping. Look at the one on whom they turn their back. The mighty God. The everlasting counselor. The prince of peace. Behold the glory of the Godhead. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the God from whom they turn. That's the one whom they despise. Here is the Christ in whom the world is not interested. Oh, the madness of it all. But wait a minute. What am I speaking about? Don't you see the glory? Veiled in the flesh, it is nevertheless there. He's in the form of a servant. He seems to be a man. Yes, but remember, he counted it not robbery to be equal with God. He was from eternity. He is one with God. He is the everlasting Son, everlastingly coming out of the Father. He is the fullness of the Godhead in himself. And yet, 
he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a man. He took upon him the form of a servant. He came incognito. My friends, have you ever seen anything more wonderful, more glorious? Look at the nature of the God. Oh, what infinite condescension. Oh, what self-abasement, what self-humiliation. That's the God. The only true God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let me hasten on. His power to help, that's our second test. What of the true religion? We've seen the other. What of true religion? Well, the Old Testament prophecy said, He hath laid help on one that is mighty. But is he? Can he help me? I say I want help in temptation. I've got to fight the world and the flesh and the devil. Everybody has. We are in an evil, sinful world. The world, it's shouting at you in all directions, enticing you. The flesh, it's in you. The power of evil. The devil, these unseen powers. How can I fight? I need help here to fight the world and the flesh and the devil. Can he help me? This Christ, this babe, this Jesus. Well, read the record. The devil had him for 40 days in the wilderness trying to get him down. He failed completely. He conquered him with extreme ease. The devil came with all his subtlety, bringing out all his enticements, and Christ said, it is written. He just quoted scripture, and the devil was discomfited and defeated. He's conquered him. He's conquered him every time. With all his powers and forces, he defeated them once and forever. And therefore, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, because he has been tempted in all points like as we are, he is able also to help us and to succor us and to sympathize with us in our temptations. Yes, my friend, he can do it. He's done it. We are not preaching a theory. We are preaching a fact. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been in this world. He lived as a man. And the devil brought out all his reserves against him. But he was completely defeated. He has mastered him. He has conquered him once and forever. What is the result? Well, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Why? Well, temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. And it's true, thank God. He makes me strong when I was weak. He makes me more than conqueror. I say, hold me with thy powerful hand. And he does. But oh, you say, what about the guilt of your sin? Stocks and stones can't help me here. Your philosophies are of no value to me here. When my conscience condemns me, when I feel I'm sinful and vile and putrid, and there's nothing I can do about myself and nobody can help me. My guilt. Can he help me? Here's your answer. Help me. He's the only one who can help me and he has helped me. Stocks and stones can't help me. The law of God can't help me at this point. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. What's it mean? It means this. The problem is the problem of the guilt of sin. Can you get rid of it? How can you forget your past? 
How do you know you're forgiven? How can you rejoice in forgiveness and salvation? Have you tried it? You'll have to stand before God and you'll realize your guilt and sinfulness. What can you do? You can do nothing. But he's done it. That's why he came into this world. That's why he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. That's why he lived that life which he did in obedience to God's law. That's why he went deliberately to Jerusalem when everybody was trying to tell him not to. That's why he went to the cross when he said, I could command twelve legions of angels and I could be wafted to heaven if I wanted to, but I'm not. I've come, what for? I've come to die. He came in order to taste death for every man. He came to be made an offering for your sins and mine. He came to take our guilt upon him, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. By his stripes we are healed. Yes, he's been bruised for our iniquities and for our transgressions. Can he help? He's the only one who can, and he can. Blessed be his name. He's taken it away. What else do you want? Comfort. His comforts, they shall strengthen thee like flowing waters cool. And they for thee shall be a fountain ever full. But what about death, says someone? It's all right. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand, bread of heaven, Feed me now and evermore. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of deaths and hell's destruction. Land me safe on Canaan's side. Can he do it? Of course he can. He is the death of death. He is hell's destruction. He's conquered death. He's gone through it. He emerged the other side. He's vanquished it. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Here is one who's conquered all. Life, death, present, future, past, all is covered. He's all sufficient. He has done everything I need. He has left nothing undone. He passes my second test with flying colors. He's all sufficient. He is the complete Savior. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's made unto me wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's my all and in all. He satisfies my second test. What of my third test? How does he leave me at the end? This is why the false religion left me. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. Ashamed. How does he leave me? When everything has gone against me that can go wrong, when everything has forsaken me, when I am surrounded by every conceivable calamity and trial, how does he leave me? How does his religion leave me? Am I now ashamed? Listen to Paul answering. Writing to Timothy in the second epistle, in the first chapter and the twelfth verse, having given an account of his troubles and trials, he was in prison and suffering, and he was hearing rumors that Nero was on the point of putting him to death. What does he say? This is what he says. Nevertheless, 
I am not ashamed, for I know him whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Ashamed? No, no. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Oh, says Paul very honestly, in writing to the Corinthians, second epistle, chapter 4, perplexed. Oh, yes, I'm very perplexed very often. Things are happening that I don't understand. Perplexed. But not in despair. Oh, no, no. There's no despair while he's about. Perplexed, but not in despair. It's all right, says Peter, quoting the Old Testament. He that believeth in him shall not be confounded. Never. He that believeth shall never make haste. Why? Well, for this reason. He which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Quite right, says Paul. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Never. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. I shall never be forsaken. I'll never be ashamed. I'll never be found out like the thief. He will be with me always. Life, death, ever, always. It's all right. Ah, but you say that was the Apostle Paul. That was the first age of Christianity, it is true now. Let Top Lady tell us the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below nor above, can make him his purpose forgo, nor sever my soul from his love. No, no, never. From him who loves me now so well, says another, what power my soul can sever? Shall life, or death, or earth, or hell? No. I am his. Forever. His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave my soul in trouble to sink. Never. Each Ebenezer that comes and goes assures me that he who has led me hitherto will lead me on. He has promised it. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee in heavenly love abiding. No change my heart shall fear and safe is such confiding for nothing changes here. The storm may roar without me. My heart may low be laid but God is round about me. And can I be dismayed? No, no. Green pastures are before me, which I have never seen. There is a glory, there is a certainty. There is an absolute promise. He which hath begun the work in me will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Very well, my friends. I've held the two religions before you, exactly as Jeremiah did. Let me ask you my question. Which is yours? To what are you trusting? For what are you living? On what are you relying? You've looked at them with me, haven't you? I've been reasoning with you. I've been putting facts before you. 
Facts which are inexorable and unavoidable. Tell me, which is it? Is it conceivable that anybody is mad enough to go out of this building tonight, still believing in a false religion, in a stock or in a stone, in your own mind, in the writings of popular journalists who don't know how to live, but who write very glibly and cleverly? Is it conceivable that you'll go on living for this world and its gaudy pleasures, which will be dying in your hand and love nothing to give you in the moment of your deepest agony? Is it possible? I can't believe it. Surely there's only one thing for us to do. Do you remember one afternoon our Lord had been preaching and he was saying some very wonderful things, but they were rather difficult. And some people said, we can't stand this. And they decided they'd never listen to him anymore. At that point, we are told, many went away from him and walked no more with him. It's in John 6. And our Lord turned to the disciples and said, Will you also go away? You see, they're leaving me. They're turning their backs upon me. They say they can't listen to me any longer. It's too hard. They say it's too much. Who can bear this? Will you also go away? Are you also going that direction? If you want to, now's your opportunity. Will you also go away? And Peter gave the immortal answer. Lord, he said, to whom shall we go? To whom can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Go away, says Peter. To whom can we go? Who else is there? If we leave you, what have we? Chaos has come again. Stocks, stones, men, world, flesh, devil. To whom can we go? No, no, there is no one else. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Isn't it inevitable? Well, my dear friend, realize the inevitability and turn to him this evening. If you've never turned to him before, do so now. Realize what a fool you've been, how you've been duped, duped and deluded. Realize your unutterable folly. And in your crisis, I'd say, go back to him and say, Arise and save us. Turn to him and cry out unto him to have mercy. What'll happen? Well, it may happen to you that this is what you'll hear. This is what you'll be told. Where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. All right, let's be free. Let's be honest. Let's be men together. You deserve that, don't you? Every one of us deserves it. We've deliberately turned our backs upon God, ridiculed his religion, laughed at it, treated it with scorn, cursed it. Christ, not interested. Bread and wine, blood. We're not interested. We're sophisticated. We're 20th century. You've done it deliberate. And you've said, these be your gods, O Israel. You've lived for these other things, but now you're in trouble and you turn back to God. All right, you deserve it, don't you? And you may very well hear it. He will say to you, where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise and save thee if they can in thy time of trouble. You may, as it were, have to pass through hell for a while. You may feel yourself desperate. You may feel yourself forsaken. And you'll have nothing to say. 
You've asked for it. You've ridiculed the God of glory. And you've put stocks and stones in his place. You've put man and things in the place of the almighty God. And when you turn to him, you'll say, why don't you trust your own gods? Go back to them. You believed in them. Ask them to save you. And you'll be left with yourself and your hopeless dumb dogs of gods. And you'll be desperate. And you'll feel that hell has already come round you. And you'll know not what to do. What have I to say to you? It was in spite of the fact that we all in the world with us, whereas I've been describing, it was in spite of that that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Oh, it was in spite of us and the darkness and the vileness of this evil world that he sent his Son into it as the babe of Bethlehem, the Christ of Calvary, to die for us and our sins. And I have his warrant for saying this. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you really do see your folly and are humbled and contrite and penitent, if you really mean it and cry out unto him for compassion, for pity, for mercy, for deliverance, he will not cast you out. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will clothe you with the righteousness of his Son. He'll give you a new life, a new nature. He'll put his Holy Spirit into you. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll be with you always. And eventually, he will receive you into everlasting glory that you may spend your eternity with him. The Lord of glory, my Lord, my God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.